Wrong from the start. Borrowing a phrase from Pound's critique of the decline of English poetic art, in 1960, I protested in dismay and anger against a century of gross distortions of Chinese poetry by translators who allowed the target language, in this case English, to mask and master the indigenous Chinese aesthetic, creating treacherous modes of representation. These translators seemed unaware that classical Chinese poetry emerges from a perceptual ground with a set of cultural aesthetic assumptions, radically different from that of Western poetry. That its syntax is in many ways inseparable from this perceptual ground, and that by imposing Indo-European linguistic habits on Chinese classical Chinese without any adjustment, the translators were significantly changing the poetry's. Perceptual expressive procedures. Therefore, in order to remedy these problems in translation, I've organized the Chinese poems in this book into a three-part structure. Given first is the poem in the original Chinese. It is followed by my word-for-word -word annotations, and finally my translation with minimal but workable sy syntax. I've done this in order to open up an aesthetic space where readers can move back and forth between classical Chinese and modern American perceptual expressive dimensions. Underlying the classical Chinese aesthetic is the primary idea of non-interference with nature's flow, as reflected in poetic language. This idea has engendered freedom from the syntactical rigidities often found in English. And most, if not all, of the Indo-European languages. In English, a sentence is almost always structured according to rigid syntactical rules, whereas classical Chinese, as it is used in poetry, is syntactically flexible. For example, although the Chinese language has articles and personal pronouns, they are often dispensed with in poetry. This opens up an inter. Indeterminate space for readers to enter and re-enter for multiple perceptions, rather than locking them into some definite perspectival position, or guiding them in a certain direction. Then there is the sparseness, if not absence, of connective elements, prepositions or conjunctions, and this lack, aided by the indeterminacy of parts of speech, and no tense. Declensions in verbs affords the readers a unique freedom to consort with the objects and events of the real life world. The words in a Chinese poem quite often have a loose relationship with readers, who remain in a sort of middle ground between engaging with them, attempting to make predicative connections to articulate relationships between and among the words, and disengaging from them. Refraining from doing so, since since such predicative acts would greatly restrict the possibility of achieving non-interference. Therefore, the asyntactical and paratactical structures in Chinese poetry promote a kind of pre-predicative condition, wherein words like objects, often in a coextensive and multiple montage, in the real world. Are free from predetermined relationships and single meanings, and offer themselves to readers in an open space. Within this space, and with the poet stepping aside, so to speak, they can move freely and approach the words from a variety of vantage points to achieve different perceptions of the same moment. They have a cinematic visuality and stand at the threshold of many possible meanings. In retrospect, I must consider myself fortunate to live during a time when both poets and philosophers in the West have already begun to question the framing of language, echoing in part the ancient Taoist critique of the restrictive and distorting activities of names and words, and their power-wielding violence, and opening up reconsiderations of language and power, both aesthetically and politically. When Heidegger warns us that any dialogue using Indo-European languages to discuss the spirit of East Asian poetry will risk destroying the possibility of accurately saying what the dialogue is about, he is sensing the danger of language 
as a dwelling, trapping experience within a privileged subjectivity. When Williams Carlos Williams writes, unless there is a new mind, there cannot be a new line. He also means unless there is a new line, there cannot be a new mind. Until we disarm the tyrannical framing functions of the English language, the natural self in its fullest sentience cannot be released to maximum expressivity. The syntactical innovations initiated by Pound, aided by his discovery of the Chinese character as a medium for poetry, Stein, Williams, who, among other sources, took Williams James's session very seriously, i.e. to retrieve the real existence before it is broken up into serial orders through language and conceptions, and E.E. E. Cummings, and reinforced in practice and theory by the Black Mountain poets John Cage, Robert Duncan, and Snyder, suddenly open up a new perceptual expressive possibility in English, a new ambiance whereby I can stage Chinese poetry according to its original operative dynamics, rather than tailoring it to fit the Western Procrustean bed. In reprinting this anthology, I wish to make this new perceptual ground and expressive dynamics accessible to more readers who are eager to reach beyond Western frames toward newer landscapes and to enter into an inter-reflective dialogue with Chinese poetry. Translating Chinese Poetry, The Convergence of Languages and Poetics, A Radical Introduction. Part 1. Concrete Examples Before Abstractions. First, a short poem by the 8th century Chinese poet Meng Hao Jian, laid out according to the original order of appearance and graphic impression of the Chinese characters. Beside each character are given word-for-word -word dictionary annotations, plus some bare indications of their grammatical functions, i.e. using tentative English classifications. The poem runs move, boat, moor, smoke, shore, sun, dusk, traveler, grief, new, wild, wilderness, far-reaching, empty, sky, low, trees, river, clear, noon, near, man. How is an English reader to respond to this poem? I mean by an English reader, one whose language habits are those that demand rigid syntactical cooperation between and among parts of speech, such as a subject leads to a verb to an object, articles govern certain nouns, past actions cast in past tenses, third person singular asks for a change in verb endings, etc. How is he to respond to a poem written in a language in which such rigid syntactical demands are sparse, if not absence? Is he to supply some of the missing links between the characters? This is perhaps the first question any reader will attempt to answer. Many readers and translators simply go ahead and do it without reflecting a bit whether such an act is legitimate, aesthetically speaking. Before examining closely some of these attempts, it is perhaps useful for us to see the degree of syntactical freedom open to the user of the classical Chinese language. Let us use an emphatic example, a palindrome by Su Tung Po, 1036 to 1101. This is a seven-character, eight-line regulated poem, which can be read backward with different meaning. Time, follow, dark, wave, snow, mountain, pour. Pour, mountain, snow, wave, dark, follow, tide. Tides pursue dark waves, snow mountain fall. Mountain pouring snow waves, darkly follow tides. 
The line reads forward and backward perfectly naturally. To do this in English is unimaginable. The examples in English, such as Madam, I'm Adam, and Abel was I ear I saw Elba, are not really doing what the Chinese language can do. Translated into English, the syntactical demands, precise grammatical function allotted to each word, becomes obvious. Which brings, to, which brings us to conclude that the Chinese language can easily be free from syntactical bounds, although one must hasten to add that this does not mean Chinese is without syntax. This freedom from syntactical rigidity, while it is no doubt, it no doubt creates tremendous problems for the translator, provides the user with a unique mode of presentation. Or perhaps we should say, it is the unique mode of perception of reality of the Chinese which has occasioned this flexibility of syntax. Try two lines by Tu Shen Yun. Cloud, mist, go out, sea, dawn. Plum, willow, cross, river, spring. Are we to read these lines as clouds and mist move out to the sea at dawn? Plums and willows cross the river bloom in spring? There is something distorted in this version when compared to the original order of impressions. What about reading them in the following manner? Clouds and mists out to sea, dawn. Plums and willows across the river, spring. And on aesthetic grounds, what kind of perception has this order of words promoted? This leads us to an exploration of some of the central questions of Chinese poetics. Returning to Men Hao Jian's poem, we can now ask some more specific questions. Who moves the boat to moor by the smoke shore? How are we to arbitrate this? Shall we assume, as with most of our Chinese translators, that the speaker I is always crouched behind the poetic statement or image? What is the difference between putting the I into the poem and not putting it there? It is, is it possible not to have the personal pronoun? To have it thus is to specify the speaker or agent of the action, restricting the poem, at least on the linguistic level, to one participant only. Whereas freedom from the personal pronoun universalizes the state of being or feeling, providing a scene or a situation into which all the readers would move, as it were, to take part directly. This poem contains a number of actions. Actions take place in time, but the classical Chinese language is tenseless. Why tenseless? Shall we cast these actions into the past, as evidenced by some of the following examples? The fact is, if the Chinese poet has avoided restricting actions to one specific agent, he has also refrained from committing them to finite time. Or shall we say, the mental horizon of the Chinese poets does not lead them to posit an event within a segment of finite time. The past, present, and future tenses in Indo-European languages set time and space limits, even on the linguistic level, but the Chinese verbs or verb elements tend to return to phenomenon itself, that undifferentiated mode of being, which is timeless, the concept of time being a human invention arbitrarily imposed upon phenomenon. We have seen the ambiguous grammatical roles some Chinese characters can play. In this poem, two verbs in line three and four assume, as it were, a double identity, how are we to determine the syntactical relation between the objects before or after low or lowers and near or nears? Is it the vastness of the wilderness that has lengthened the sky, lowering it to the trees, or does the breadth of the stretch of the trees seem to pull the sky to the wilderness? If we read the word low not as a verb, but as an adjective, 
the line becomes three visual units. Vast wilderness, sky, low trees. What choice are we to make? Which syntactical relation should we determine? Or should we determine at all? Enough exposition has now been given to the multiple levels of possibilities for the poem as enhanced by flexible syntax and other unique features of the Chinese language. The questions I pose here are not for mere grammatical exercise. They are reflected as critical problems in many examples of translations. Italicized words indicate the translator's insertion to supply what he believes to be the missing links. Giles, 1898. I steer my boat to anchor by the mist-clad river Eyot, and mourn the dying day that brings me nearer to my fate. Across the woodland wild I see the sky leans on the trees, while close to hand the mirror moon floats on the shining streams. Fletcher, 1919. Our boat by the mist-covered illet we tied. The sorrows of absence the sunset brings back. Low-breasting the foliage, the sky loomed black. The river is bright with the moon at our side. Binner, 1920. While my little boat moves on its mooring mist, and daylight wanes, old memories begin. How wide the world was, how close the trees to heaven, and how clear in the water the nearness of the moon. Christie, 1929. At dusk I moored my boat on the banks of the river, with the oncoming of night, my friend is depressed. Heaven itself seems to cover over the gloomy trees of the wide fields. Only the moon, shining on the river, is near man. Jennings, 1944. I move my boat and anchor in the mists off an islet. With the setting sun, the traveler's heart grows melancholy once more. On every side is a desolate expanse of water. Somewhere the sky comes down to the trees, and the clear water reflects a neighboring moon. Other experimental attempts. Moving boat, mooring, smoke shore. Sun darkening, new sadness of traveler. Wilderness, sky lowering trees. Limpid river. Moon nearing man. Boat moves to moor mid-shore smoke. Sun sinks. Traveler feels fresh sadness. Wilderness, sky, low trees, limpid river. Moon nears man. A boat slows, moors by beach run in smoke. Sun fades. A traveler's sorrow freshens. Open wilderness, wide sky, a stretch of low trees, limpid river, clear moon close to man. Reading all of the above translations against the original with which we are now familiar, we find that they are secondary elaborations of some primary form of experience the unfolding of some schemata into separate parts. All the translators, starting with Giles, must have been led by the sparseness of syntax in the original to believe that the Chinese characters must be telegraphic, in the sense that they are shorthand signs for a longhand message, and so they took it as their task to translate the shorthand into longhand, poetry into prose, adding commentary all along to aid understanding not knowing that these are pointers toward a finer shade of suggestive beauty which the discursive, analytical, longhand unfolding process destroys completely. The fact is, these images, often coexisting in spatial relationships, 
form an atmosphere or environment, an ambiance, in which the reader may move and be directly present, poised for a moment before being imbued with the atmosphere that evokes, but does not state, an aura of feeling, in this case, grief, a situation in which he may participate in completing the aesthetic experience of an intense moment, the primary form of which the poet has arrested in concrete data. It is obvious that we cannot approach this poem and most other Chinese poems with the arbitrary time categories of the West, based as they are on a causal linearity imposed by a human conceptualization. The Western concept of being conceals being rather than exposing it. It turns us away from the appeal of the concreteness of objects and events in phenomenon rather than bringing us into immediate contact with them. The capacity of the Chinese poem to be free from Western arbitrary temporal constructs and to keep a certain degree of close harmony with the concrete events in phenomenon can be illustrated by the way film handles temporality, for film is a medium most felicitous in approximating the immediacy of experience. Without mulling over the complex use of time and space in the art of film, let us get down to the fundamentals. For our purpose, a passage from Stevenson Debris' introductory book, The Cinema as Art, will make this clear. Cinema has a natural freedom in temporal construction. The lack of time prepositions and conjunctions, tenses and other indications, can leave the film free to reach the spectator with an immediacy which literature is unable to match. Time prepositions and conjunctions, such as before he came, since I have been here, then, do not exist in a film, nor do they in actual events in life. No tense in either case. When we watch a film, it is just something that is happening now. Similarly, the Chinese line, vast plains, sky, low, tree, when translated into, as the plain is vast, the sky lowers the trees, immediately loses its cinematic visuality promoted by what I once called spotlighting activity, or what the filmmakers called mobile point of view of the spectator. Loses out the acting out of the objects, the nowness and the concreteness of the moment. By this example, I do not mean to imply that the Chinese do not have time indicators at all. They do, but they are often avoided, aided by the flexibility of syntax. We can now see that the experimental versions of this line, in their somewhat naive way, i.e. viewed from the cultural burden of the English language, have perhaps brought back more of the cinematic directness of the moment. Wilderness, sky, low trees. Open wilderness, wide sky, a stretch of low trees. And the approximation of two Shenyan's lines into clouds and mists out to sea, dawn, plums and willows across the river, spring, is perhaps not entirely out of order. Much of the art of Chinese poetry lies in the way in which the poet captures the visual events as they emerge and act themselves out before us releasing them from their restrictive concept of time and space, letting them leap out directly from the undifferentiated modes of existence, instead of standing between the reader and the events, explaining them, analyzing them. To say that the Chinese have no time and space categories, or to say that Chinese poetry has no place for commentary, would be overstating the case. But it is also true that they are infrequently and seldom extensively used. They would not force the perspective of the ego as a means of ordering the phenomenon before them. The lack of the use of personal pronouns is not just some curious habit of mind. 
It is in tune with the Chinese concept of losing yourself in the flux of events, the way, Tao, the million changes constantly happening before us. With this perspectivism in our mind, we can now understand more fully the asyntactical or paratactical formation of many of the Chinese lines. First, a normal syntactical type that most resembles the English subject-verb-object structure. Lone, lamp, burn, traveler's dream, cold, pounding stick, pound, homesickness, for washing clothes. Ten, ten. Clouds receive, go out of the pass, horse, wind, roll, crossing the river, flag. There is little difficulty in reading and translating lines of this structure into English, except for the usual consideration of the correct choice of words. The examples of asyntactical or paratactical lines, which abound in Chinese poetry, are the ones that trouble the English and European translators the most. And it is here the perspectivism outlined above can easily come to our aid. Let us look at some concrete examples. Stars come, 10,000 houses move. Tufu. Compare it with while the stars are twinkling above the 10,000 households. William Hung. The translation here has changed the visual events into statements about these visual events. Stars come could perhaps be interpreted as temporal, but it is time-spatialized, which is what an event means. An event takes time, place, space. But when while is added, the translator ignores the inseparability of time and space. Similarly, in the line, moon, set, crow, ka, frost, full, sky, changchi. Moon down is at once a space fact and a time fact in the form of a visual event. Hence, when rendered into as the moon sets, the significance and the concreteness of the event is relegated to a subordinate position. Consider not only the visuality of the event, but also the independence of each visual event, so as to promote a kind of spatial tension among and coexistence with the other visual events. To translate these lines, star, dangle, flat, plain, broad, Moon, surge, big, river, flow. Dufu, into, the stars lean down from open space, and the moon comes running up the river, binner. Stars drawn low by the vastness of the plain, the moon rushing forward in the river's flow, birch. is to ignore the spatial coexistence of these events, and in doing so, the translators have denied the capacity of the reader-viewer to move in among them, even though one still finds great beauty in the translated lines, beauty of a different order of impressions from the original. Equally significant is the order of appearance of these visual events, the order of noticing in Men Hao Jian's poem, like the camera movement, First, the vast wilderness, then moving backward to include the sky within our ken before zooming in on the low trees, mimics the activities of our perceiving act, hence enabling the reader-viewer to relive the life of the poetic moment. Measuring this against the translations of the line given earlier, the loss is too obvious to need comment here. Similarly, we allow the following version of the line, moon, surges, big, river, flows. Noticing gleaming brightness before noticing movement of the river, 
into le grand fleuve s'école au rimeau de la lune, only at the risk of falsifying the authenticity of the life of the moment. We can see here that poets whose perceptual horizons emphasize the miming of the activities of the perceiving act by tuning the visual events according to the gradations of color and light in the total makeup of the growth of the moments. Poets such as Wang Wei and Men Hao Jian suffer the most in English translations. Let us look at just one such violation. Empty, mountain, not, sea, man. Wang Wei becomes in Binner's hand, there seems to be no one on the empty mountain. The analytical or explanatory there seems to be no one represents, of course, the translator's interference in the direct contact of the empty mountain with the viewer reader. And to put no one ahead of empty mountain violates the life of the moment. You notice the emptiness, the openness, first, before we are aware of the other state of being. Wang Wei is prized for his ability to turn language into miming gestures of the perceiving act. It is instructive to scan a few examples. I offer here very literal renderings for illustrative purposes. White clouds looking back close up. Green mists entering to see nothing. There are changing perspectives in these lines. White clouds, looking back, close up. The visual events are accentuated the way a mimer, in order to reflect an event that is not visible, forms gestures and moments, highlighting them to suggest the energy flow that originally supports that event. Arn Zaslov, in a demonstration lecture in the project of music experiment, at the University of California, San Diego, in January 1973, gave an example that articulates the curve of energy flow of the moment most clearly. He said, supposing a man is carrying a heavy suitcase with both of his hands, he proceeds to place both of his hands on the imaginary handle and lift the imaginary heavy suitcase. You will find that your whole body has to bend sideways towards your right to balance off the weight. If the mimer should at this point bend toward the left, the whole miming act is false and becomes unrecognizable. Words as signs function at the maximum when they capture the life mechanism of the moment of experience in ways similar to those described by Zaslov. In Wang Wei, Li Po, Li Shangying, and many others, the tendency is to reproduce visual curves of the events, emphasizing different phases of perception with a mobile point of view or spotlighting activities. Here are some examples that need no further comment. Vast desert. Lone smoke, straight, long way. Lone sail, a distant shade, lost into the blue horizon, Lipo. Dark sea, bright moon, pearls with tears, Li Shengying. With the last one, we pass from the objective physical world into a possible dream state in which time is cut off from its normal flux and becomes absolute in the sense that objects thus presented may become coextensive with one another. As usual, the visuality is remarkable. The unity here is one of shape and color, not causal relation of any kind. Now a few complete poems of the authenticity of the perceiving act. Dryad finds an old tree Evening crows, a small bridge, flowing water, men's homes, an ancient road, west winds, 
a lean horse. Sun slants west. A heart-torn man at sky's end. Ma Chi-yen. This poem operates pictorially rather than semantically. The successive shots do not constitute a linear development, such as how this leads to that. Rather, the objects coexist as in a painting. And yet the mobile point of view has made it possible to temporalize the spatial units. And witness this poem. A thousand mountains, no bird's flight. A million paths, no man's trace. Single boat, bamboo-leaved cape, an old man. Fishing alone, ice river, snow. Liu Cheng Yuan. We need little orientation to notice that the camera eye from a bird's eye view with which we can at once take possession of the totality of the scene on a cosmic scale, as in all the Chinese landscape paintings, zooms in upon one single object, an old man in the midst of the vast frozen river surrounded by snow. Unlike the film, which often focuses on events to be strung together with a storyline, the cinematic movement here reproduces the activities of the perceiving act of an intense moment, the total consciousness of which is not completed until all the visual moments are presented simultaneously, again as in our perception of a classical Chinese painting. The spatial tensions here, the immeasurable cosmic coexisting with a speck of human existence, put us together, puts us in the center of phenomenon, allowing us to reach out to the circumference. We mentioned earlier the fact that Chinese poets would not force the perspective of the ego upon phenomenon. This is most obvious in Chinese landscape painting in which we either should say there's no perspective in it, the artist having become the objects in phenomenon, or there are revolving perspectives, viewing totality from different angles simultaneously. This happens also in Chinese poetry. We have seen in almost all the examples given above, and in the last quoted poem in particular, how the viewer reader is made to move into the total environment to experience the visual events from different spatial angles. More intriguing are the following lines from Wen Tingyu. Cock, crow, straw, in, moon. Man, trace, plank, bridge, frost. These are selected details, objects in their purest form, given to us at one instant to constitute an atmosphere, an environment. It is an environment in which we move about rather than viewing it from a fixed distant angle because we can never be certain as to where in the background we should put the cock, the moon, the bridge. There are other ways of locating these details. The moon need not be above the inn. It could very well be just barely seen above the horizon. Without determining the definite spatial relationships of the objects, without allotting them fixed positions as viewed from chosen perspectives, as any translation of these lines into English would be tempted to do, we are liberated to see them from different perspectives. As a result, we're enabled to cross the limits of words into the realm of sculpture, toward the act of perceiving a piece of sculpture whose total existence depends on our viewing it from different angles as we move around it. This sculptural quality is superbly approximated in Wang Wei's Mount Chengnan. The Chengnan Ranges verge on the capital, mountain upon mountain, to seas brim. White clouds looking back close up. Green mists entering become nothing. Terrestrial divisions change at the middle peak. Shade and light differ with every valley.
to stay over in some stranger's house, across the water, call to ask a woodcutter. In one of the volunteer sessions on the structure of the Chinese characters held in an American grade school, after I had finished explaining how some of the Chinese characters are pictorially based, how the signs match the actual objects, one boy proceeded naively to pose a sagacious question. All of these are nouns. How are they to form ideas? It seems legitimate to pose the same question regarding many of the Chinese lines above. I believe the question is answered in part in my earlier analysis of a Liu Songyan's poem, in which the spatial tensions and relationships between the immeasurable cosmic scene and a speck of human existence in the figure of an old man fishing project out without comment, project out without comment, a meaning of the condition of man in nature. All the other lines can be understood in a similar light. Returning to the boy's question, I answered him by bringing out another category of Chinese character structures. The two characters I chose were Returning to the boy's question, I answered him by bringing out another category of Chinese character structures. The two characters I chose were Ming and something. The etymological origin of Shi, time, consists of the pictograph of sun and the latter being a pictograph developed from an ancient picture of a foot touching the ground, which came to mean both stop and go. Thus, the earliest Chinese viewed the stop and go of the sun, the measured movement of the sun, as the idea time. The earliest pictographic stage of was denoting a mouth blowing a flute, the tip of a Chinese flute. This character now means speech, expression, message, which, to the people of the First Harmony, was to be in rhythmic measure. Here, in both cases, two visual objects juxtaposed to form an idea. As we may now recall, the structural principle of the Chinese character inspired Sergei Eisenstein to conceive the technique of montage in the film. The same structural principle continues to be at work in Chinese poetry. One line from a Li Po poem, which I discussed in great detail in my book, Ezra Pound's Café, was Floating Cloud, Wanderer's Mood. Let me quote the relevant parts. Does the line mean, syntactically, floating clouds are a wanderer's mood, or floating clouds are like a wanderer's mood? The answer is, it does and it does not at the same time. No one would fail to perceive the resemblance of a wanderer's drifting life to the floating clouds, but there is a flash of interest in the syntactically uncommitted resemblance which the introduction of are and are like destroys. In this case, we actually see the floating clouds and the wanderer and the state of mind he is in simultaneously. This simultaneous presence of two objects like the juxtaposition of two separate shots, resembles not so much a simple sum of one shot plus another shot as it does a creation. It resembles a creation rather than a sum of its parts. From the circumstance that in every juxtaposition, the result is qualitatively distinguishable from each component element viewed separately. Similarly, we have the following lines that by the sheer fact of montage using independent but juxtaposed visual elements point to an idea without allowing into the presentation the interference of the rhetoric of commentary. In the line, empire, broken, mountain, 
river exist. The reader feels, without being told, the contrast and tension in the scenery so presented, and the introduction of explanatory elaboration will destroy the immediate contact between the viewer and the scene, as in the case of this typical translation and many others. Though a country be sundered, hills and rivers endure. Binner. Whether using montage or mobile points of view in the perceiving act, the Chinese poets give paramount importance to the acting out of visual objects and events, letting them explain themselves by their coexisting, coextensive emergence from nature, letting the spatial tensions reflect conditions and situations, rather than coercing these objects and events into some preconceived artificial orders by sheer human interpretive elaboration. In a line like Li Po's, Phoenix gone, terrace empty, river flows on alone. Do we need any more words to explain the vicissitude of time versus the permanence of nature? Or in these lines from Tu Fu's Autumn Meditation, Jade, dew, wither, wound, maple, tree, grove, Wu, mountain, Wu, gorges, air, grave, desolate, river, middle, waves, embrace, include, sky, surge, pass, top, winds, clouds, connect, ground, shadow. Gems of dew wilt and wound the maple trees in the wood. From Wu Mountains, from Wu Gorges, the air blows desolate. The waves between the river banks merge in the seething sky. Clouds in the wind above the passes touch their shadows on the ground. Poems of the Late Tang. Where the curves of the external climate coincide with the curves of the internal climate of the aging poet, do we need to falsify their identity by turning them into puppets of some grand idea? Part two. The success of the Chinese poets in authenticating the fluctuation of concrete events in phenomenon, their ability to preserve the multiple relationships in a kind of penumbra of indeterminateness depends to a great extent upon the sparseness of syntactical demands. This helps the poet to highlight independent visual events, leaving them in co-extensive spatial relationships. And this language, as a medium for poetry, would not have become what it is without the support of a unique aesthetic horizon, easy loss of self into the undifferentiated mode of existence, ordained by centuries of art and poetry. There is an inseparability between medium and poetics, between language and worldview. The question now arises, how can a language of rigid syntactical rules, such as English, approximate successfully the mode of presentation whose success depends upon freedom from syntax? The reverse question is also imminent. How can an epistemological view, worldview developed from the Platonic and Aristotelian metaphysics, which emphasize the ego, in search of knowledge from the non of the non-ego, having taken up the task of classifying being in concepts, propositions, and ordered structures, turn around and endorse a medium that belies the function and process of epistemological elaboration. The answer is impossible if the platonic dichotomy of the phenom phenomenal and noumenal appearance and reality and the Aristotelian universal logical structures persist without any sort of adjustments. If one attempted to turn the English language into one of broken, unsyntactical units and demanded that it become a medium for poetry, he would be excommunicated rather than anointed 
so long as no attempt has been made to widen the possibilities of the Western aesthetic horizon to include the other perspectivism, at least to exist coextensively with the native worldview. It is at this juncture that the discussion of convergence becomes most cogent and significant. The Adjustment of Western Worldviews in Modern Times is a book in itself. No such attempt is to be made here. Without going into the complicated history of this adjustment, it is sufficient to say one thing, namely, all modern thought and art, from the phenomenologists to as late as Jean Dubuffet's anti-cultural positions, began with a rejection of abstract systems, particularly those of Plato and Aristotle, in order to return to concrete existence. Almost all of the phenomenologists posed this question, and Heidegger's request to return to the appeal of beings gathered momentum in many later philosophers and artists. Meanwhile, Bergson, who is in essence still an epistemological philosopher, pointed a way toward the liquidation of the romantic self. The philosophical rationalization of the subject has been closely examined by Wiley Cipher in his book, Loss of the Self in Modern Literature and Art. For our purpose, we will focus on a few statements by Anglo-American critics and poets at the turn of the century, which have led to a subtle adjustment of the poetic language to the degree that it literally violates traditional syntactical structures. My central interest in this part is with some of the potentials of this process of change in the English language. Direct entry into the matter, then. Not the fruit of experience, but experience itself is the end, to burn always with this hard, gem-like flame. Ancient thought sought to arrest every object in an eternal outline. The modern spirit asserts that nothing is or can be rightly known except relatively and under conditions. Modern man becomes so receptive all the influences of nature and of society ceaselessly playing upon him so that every hour in his life is unique, changed altogether by a stray word or glance or touch. It is the truth of these relations that experience gives us, not the truth of eternal outlines ascertained once for all, but a world of gradations. Experience itself is the key, a world of gradations, not the eternal outlines ascertained once for all, of the platonic ideas. Echoing Pater, but developed from Bergson, T.E. Holm, the ancients were perfectly aware of the fluidity of the world and of its impermanence, but while they recognized it, they feared it and endeavored to evade it to construct things of permanence which would stand fast in this universal flux which frightened them. They had the disease, the passion for immortality. They wished to construct things which should be proud, boasts that they, men, were immortal. We see it in a thousand different forms, materially in the pyramids, spiritually in the dogmas of religion, in the and in the hypostasized ideas of Plato. Instead of hypostasized ideas and constructions of the arrogant self, Holm asks that poetry be not a counter-language, but a visual concrete one. It is a compromise for a language of intuition, which would hand over sensations bodily. It always endeavors to arrest you and to make you continually see a physical thing to prevent you from gliding through an abstract process. And one of the methods to achieve this is, say the poet is moved by a certain landscape, he selects from that certain images which, put into juxtaposition in separate lines, serve to suggest and to evoke the state he feels. 
Two visual images form what one may call a visual cord. They unite to suggest an image which is different to both. This is montage. Juxtaposition of two visual elements to create a third that is different from both. The method is, to home, an alternative to the process of explanation in which syntax plays an important role. Syntax unfolds the intensive manifold, the vital reality into an extensive manifold, a mechanical complexity. In 1911, before Pound came into contact with Chinese poetry, he argued, the artist seeks out the luminous detail and presents it. He does not comment. After Pound's contact with Chinese poetry, it is because certain Chinese poets have been content to set forth their matter without moralizing and without comment that one labors to make a translation. Early in 1901, Pound advised William Carlos Williams in similar terms, and later wrote to Iris Berry emphatically, the necessity for creating or constructing something, of presenting an image or enough images of concrete things arranged to stir the reader. I think there must be more, predominantly more, objects than statements and conclusions which latter are purely optional, not essential, often superfluous and therefore bad. Pound was practicing a form of montage at the end of an early poem, Chino, without, I am sure, being fully aware of its permanence in his poetry. His contact with the Japanese haiku and Chinese poetry and Chinese characters turned the technique into a central one in the cantos, beginning with the famous Metro poem, through the juxtaposition of cultural moments as luminous details, to the use of the Chinese ideogram as an amassing vortex. Williams, in his turn, no ideas but in things. He went further. A life that is here and now is timeless. A new world that is always real and no symbolism is acceptable. A true beginning to break away from the platonic system to become, in Kenneth Burke's words, a poet of contact. And Williams wants to see the thing itself without forethought or afterthought, but with great intensity of perception. And Olson and Creeley, in step with Pound and Williams, the objects which occur at any moment of any given moment of composition are, can be, must be treated exactly as they do occur therein, and not by any ideas or preconceptions from outside the poem, must be handled as a series of objects in field, a series of tensions, space tensions of a poem, the acting on you of the poem. But Holm was arguing for a poetic ideal in front of which the English language, with all its rigid syntax for elaboration and clarification, becomes helpless. Holm called for the destruction of syntax to achieve the concrete. The earliest attempt was made by Mallarmé. In order to arrive at a pure state of poetry of essences, to freely transpose objects and words for his construction of a world, so absolute that it has no strings attached to physical reality. He dislocates syntax and, in his later sonnets, withdraws all the links that originally riveted the poem together. This absolutism of art, as well as his syntactical innovation, prepares the way for Pound to realize the poetic ideal that both Holm and Pound each in his own way postulates. The adjustment of conventional English made by Pound to approximate the curves of experience has been a steady one. Compare A with B, A being the rearrangement of B, Pound's The Coming of War, Acteon, back to the original traditional line format. A. An image of length, 
and the fields full of faint light, but golden gray cliffs and beneath them a sea harsher than granite. B, an image of Leth and the fields full of faint light, but golden gray cliffs and beneath them a sea harsher than granite. The breakup of lines into small units graphically arranged serves to promote the visuality of the images, isolate them as independent visual events, force the reader-viewer to perceive the poem in spatial counterpoints, enhance the physicality of objects, and activate the poem through phases of perception similar to the spotlighting effect or the mobile point of view. These effects, modified and refined, dominate the entire cantos. In this instance, Pound uses a space break to occasion a time break. He has not yet dealt actively with syntactical break. The latter aspect started with the metro poem and the whole discussion of the superpository technique by Pound now too famous to need repetition here, launched him into the more daring innovation of the medium. The poem was modeled after the Japanese haiku, and he examined an example in his essay, Vorticism. The footsteps of the cat upon the snow are like plum blossoms. Pound explained, the words are like would not occur in the original and Pound did precisely that in his metro poem. The apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet, black bough. Taking away the word like disrupts the syntax, giving prominence and independence to the two visual events, letting them coexist, one interdefining the other. The early version of it, published in Poetry of 1913, brings out Pound's obsession with visual order and the importance of the perceiving act. It runs, the apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet, black bow. Here we find space break and syntactical break, both of which are employed in the cantos. This graphic innovation is first found in his translation of Café. Surprised, desert turmoil, sea sun, south folk in cold country, which Pound mistranslated from the crippled Felinosa notes, a fact that I discussed in full in my book, Ezra Pound's Café. Here what we are interested in is the resemblance of this line, syntactically speaking, some of the Chinese lines we have seen. Space break, syntactical break, superimposition of one impression of bewilderment and disorder upon another, and the images are of synchronous relations. More is to come in the cantos which I will simply outline without comment. Rain, empty river, a voyage, autumn moon, Hills rise above lakes, broad water, geese line out with the autumn. Prayer, hands uplifted, solitude, a person, a nurse. Moon, cloud, tower, a patch of the Battistero, olive whiteness. I would like to add here that example is from Canto 49 which is constructed out of a series of Chinese poems, written by a, a Japanese on an album of paintings modeled after the Chinese art motif of eight views of Sao Xiang. In that poem, Pound, using a crib, done by a Chinese in Italy, keeps the closest to the Chinese syntax. One may perhaps say that with this poem, Pound finally ordains his innovation not only for himself, but for many others to come, including Gary Snyder. Similar to Pound's graphic and syntactical innovation is that done by his close friend, William Carlos Williams, 
who was partially influenced by Pound, and to a greater degree inspired by the Armory Show of 1913. This presentation of avant-garde paintings, including Marcel Duchamp's famous Nude Descending a Staircase, has been carefully treated by Professor Dijkstra in his The Hieroglyphics of a New Speech. We will find that much of what we learned from some of the Chinese lines and from Pound's graphic innovation can be applied to Williams. Compare. A. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. B. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rain water beside the white chickens.